Welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, a place for healing and hope for couples impacted by betrayal resulting from infidelity and or sex addiction. Your hosts are Marnie Breaker and Dwayne Osterland, licensed marriage and family therapists, certified sex addiction therapists, and founders of respective treatment centers in Long Beach, Los Angeles, and San Diego, California. Marnie and Dwayne co-created Helping Couples Heal, a comprehensive program for couples recovering from betrayal trauma, including an in-person two-day workshop, an online aftercare program, and this podcast series is the first component of the program. Thank you for listening. Marnie and Dwayne are committed to helping you recover from the devastating impact of betrayal trauma and are honored to support you wherever you may be in your healing. If you've lost hope, you've come to the right place. Now, take a slow, deep breath. And let's begin with the Helping Couples Heal podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. We are now on to part two with Harville and Helen, where they are going to talk in more detail about Imago Dialogue and safe conversations. I think you'll get a lot out of this episode What was very clear from both part one and part two of our interview with Harville and Helen is that they are eager to share their story with others. They also want to take Imago therapy or what they're now calling safe conversations out of the clinic and into the real world. Because as you'll hear, the percentage of people that go to couples therapy is really, really small. And Harville's dream was to be able to have everybody be able to use safe conversations to improve their relationships. So they do talk about that dream and that vision, and hopefully you'll enjoy that as much as we did. So here we go. Part two with Harville and Helen. Well, the last time that we spoke, we kind of got to know the two of you and learn about how the two of you met and how Safe Conversations or Imago Dialogue got started. But we wanted to really zero in today on the safe conversation, really like talk about, again, the history, if you can kind of just repeat that, like really how it started. And then the neuroscience, you guys touched on that the last time we met, but why, what happens in the brain that this dialogue creates this opportunity for the brain to calm down and to be more open and really help the couples that are listening who are in crisis and trauma understand how the safe conversation can be useful. So Amaga therapy was talked about in a book called Getting the Love You Want. And Oprah had Harville on the show talking about Getting the Love You Want 17 times. So the book was world famous and there were Amaga therapists in 61 countries. And Harville was depressed. <laughs> and I said, Harville, why are you depressed? Because I've done everything behind the scenes I could to support him. And he said, only 15% of the population goes for therapy. And I went, so? And he said, well, only 2% goes for couples therapy. And I said, oh, that's not a big reach of people. He said, no, those are the only people that learn about dialogue. Can you help me get this out of the clinic into the public? And let's teach everybody this stuff. And I think we should call it Safe Conversations. Now, that's my view of the history. <laughs> Do you want to tell your view of the history? Well, there's there's a little more to say. Okay. Uh, which is that we were having this conversation about the fact that both of us have social visions. And Helen's social vision had been magnificently implemented in the women's movement. So um, 
this this may be too much detail, but I'm at the Evolution for Psychotherapy Conference in 2009. I was there. You were there. Oh. I was. <laughs> All right. So well, we, uh, I was there. Helen didn't go. She most of the time went, but this time she didn't go. So I go to lunch, and I discover at lunch that I'm at a big round table with John Gottman, Julie, Dan Siegel, Caroline, Ellen Bader, Peter, everybody who are our, quote, colleagues in the field of relationship and marital therapy. Uh, and, uh, and Dan with uh, neuroscience, interpersonal neurosciences. We're all in the room. And I had this um, impulse to say, what? If we all got together, instead of doing our private therapies with couples, because what Helen was saying earlier is that living with an activist, I'm aware that therapy is not social activism. Therapy is mitigating the pain caused by a system that produces the pain. The system needs to be changed. And you can never change a system by fixing the symptoms. You have to change the core of the system so that it changes to something else. So we began to think about, well, how do you take a therapeutic intervention, which we know works with every couple, and not all therapies do that, but the dialogue works with every couple. Then we tried it with parents and children and children and children, and it just works. So we had the idea this would work anywhere, should go into the culture. Anybody could benefit from learning how to do dialogue. What we now say is learning how to talk in which most human beings don't know how to talk. They can talk, but they don't know how to talk. Successfully take the outcome they want to have. So I'm at this lunch, and I uh, had this idea of us getting together. I called Helen and said, I'm having lunch with all of our colleagues. For some reason, they put us all in the same room and around the same table. Uh, and I guess they thought relationship experts would know how to relate to each other. So I, I said, why don't we invite them to, we have a, a ranch in um, uh, New Mexico, which is a big, big hacienda that would hold, I think it has nine or 10 bedrooms in it. It was a very old historic hacienda that we uh, lived in for, for a while, but we still had it. Why don't we invite them all to El Sueño and have a conference on the question of, could we come together as a group and form a single wedge into the culture about relationships. And Helen was thrilled about that. So I went back to the table and invited them to do it. They all accepted the invitation. That was the first thing that blew my mind. And the second thing is when we, a year later, that was in 2009, 2010, we met at the ranch, they all came, not a single one left and that do you, yeah, do you remember Johnson. that peter sue, that, sue johnson was a part of it and sue johnson was a part of it ellen bader and peter and uh, michelle weiner davis that when they left peter said to us now i don't know if you were there they were getting in the car he said harville and helen your legacy may not be imago therapy your legacy may be getting all of us together <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome we met as a think tank for four years, twice a year. And I think it was, we started in 2010 and we, I think we went to 2000, either 13, Helen says three and I'm, I think it was four. But anyway, it was around six or eight. 
And we talked about how to do this. And the short version of this is uh, we came to the conclusion we needed a beta test. We needed somebody to see what you could do in a confined community. And because of Helen's discovery in Forbes magazine that she had uh, resources, nobody else on this group had the resources to go do something. They bread and butter people, they have to stay with their practices. And so we had the, the privilege of saying, well, why don't we do something uh, like go to a city and pick a section of the city and see what we can do in a whole city. And some people offered, said, go to Kansas City and several other cities. We have family in Dallas. We have six grandkids here. I think yeah. we had four at the time, um, but there were two more. So we. Yeah. And I think it was an Oprah producer who was a part of this think tank who came to the think tank by invitation, yeah. uh, who said, go to Kansas City. And we said, don't know anybody in Kansas City. We said, we know somebody in Dallas. They said, well, Dallas would be fine, but it needs to be in the top 10 cities of divorce. The highest divorce rate. Wow. And That's Dallas so was number nine <laughs> at the time. So at the time we were thinking about, you know, marriages and primarily not about the whole world. So we decided that we would come here and see what we could do. And so we came here and poked around and it took about two or three years. We became a not-for-profit. And then we started streaming uh, and boy, streaming really took off. We moved from Dallas to the whole world so that about people in about 18 countries and 38 states, I think, were suddenly uh, knew about Safe Conversations. So that's how it all got started. And I ran for a while as a not-for-profit, but it was increasingly clear that this was not a Dallas-centric project, but had become, uh, even beyond our anticipation, a global project. And a not-for-profit was not a big enough container for a global social action movement. So we changed it into a, a for-profit safe conversation called an LLC. And with COVID, we set up a training institute you had to go online with the training institute because you couldn't meet more. So we're now at the point of the intersection about what do we do next? But uh, that's essentially the history of Safe Conversation, <clears throat> how it got started. And I think that about 500 people have been trained in it so far. Probably <clears throat> 3 million people have heard about it. 45,000 people have gone <clears throat> through a workshop. So I can tell you briefly what Safe Conversations is. Yeah like what we teach in the training institute. But do you have any other questions first? No, I was just gonna reflect back that it really sounds like this grew out of this desire to bring this to a bigger audience than just the couple, that this safe conversation impacts everybody, all of us, when we're in community with others. And it sounds like trying to bring it to as many people as you can, although coupleship is, uh, a primary part of it. It's really just bigger than that. Harville's phrase was, Helen, help me get this quote out of the clinic and into the public. And by clinic, he meant if you want to talk to someone about it, you have to go to a therapist and pay therapist bill. Well, therapy is great or needed. And please go to therapist and pay those bills. But not everyone needs a therapist. What Harville thinks is if people learn, if couples learn what Safe Conversations is, or we talk about, we have a little joke about when you 
pay for a marriage license, it should be like a driver's license, that you have to read a manual and pass a test. And if you fail the test, you have to read the manual again <laughs> until you pass the test. And only then can you pay your money and you are allowed to get married. But mm -hmm. you have to show that you know how to handle problems you know, and differences. And that's what Safe Conversations does. Yeah. So essentially, Let's we're wondering has outside of the not only couple world, but the mental health world into the world at large. So mm -hmm. we started training people mm -hmm. who are professionals, but not clinicians. Well, I was actually going to say, I was going to comment on what you just said, Harville, that when I took Imago training at the Pasadena Institute for Relationships all those years ago, I remember saying, I know that this is specifically for couples, but my God, this is something that everyone should learn because in all relationships, we need to have a safe container to talk. So I was, I think I might've been an intern or just graduated or not graduated, either an intern or just got my license when I did the Imago training. And my best friend had a 16 year old at the time. She's now 30, so that we're, we're, I'm dating myself. But in any event, <laughs> my friend was really having a hard time with her 16-year-old daughter. They just couldn't communicate, and it was really challenging, and she was really upset. And I said, you know, I just learned this dialogue that I feel could be helpful. Would you guys be open to it? And she said, anything. I'm open to anything. And I went over to her home and she and her daughter sat down with me in the living room and I taught them the Yamagoko dialogue, which is you know now referred to a safe conversation. And we still talk about that because they were able to listen and hear in a different way. Like suddenly the maybe the ego was gone and that sense of being in fight mode was gone. And there was just this openness. So I remember thinking, yeah, this Imago thing is something that should absolutely be something that's taught in the schools and that we learn. And it's great for couples, but my God, the rest of the world, the rest of us need it. Mm -hmm. So that's our vision. That's right. And we came to that conclusion. And then we jumped in this big ocean called the whole planet. And let me just say how big the vision became. So we began to think about clinic to culture and decided that it was clinic to the world, not just to Western civilization, but to the whole world. So we started using the word civilization. And we talked to some people about how do you actually change the world? And one of the things that emerged was you have to reach a tipping point of change. Not everybody has to go through the change, but a tipping point. And a tipping point is, uh, the tipping point scientists say 25 to 33%, but somewhere say around 30%, that if you change 30% of a system, the system will collapse and then reorganize at a higher level but you have to have systemic collapse in order for it to happen. But you don't have to teach everybody on the planet. So we, at the time we were talking about this, uh, I think there are 7.8 billion people on the planet now. So we came to the conclusion that, that it would take about 30 years to reach a tipping point. And the tipping point of the population on the planet would be 3.2 billion people. So we said, okay, 3.2 billion people in 30 years will be taught safe conversations and encouraged to integrate it into their lives. Hopefully they'll not only 
go to a workshop, but we'll also practice it. What a beautiful vision. Yeah, that is awesome. So we figured if we could get the systemic change, could get the collapse, that we would literally, what would collapse is the individualistic civilization that we live in now. People think only the West is focused on the individual, but the East is too. Most religious traditions, even Buddhism, Hinduism, the Vedas are all still about the self, about changing your inner world, your inner consciousness in relation to our levels. And, and But it all starts inside. We decided we can't start inside. We need to start outside. And the outside is how people interact. Safe conversation is a conversation, not with yourself, but with another person. And you need to be able to talk in such a way that you are safe with that person. And to do that, you have to do certain things that Helen's going to talk about in a little while. So if we succeeded, then the vision that drives us is we would move from an individualistic civilization to a relational civilization. And we think that that would be the next stage in human social evolution. So we've been through three stages, which was hunter-gatherer society, which, as you know, turned into the farmers, the agrarian society, which eventually turned into industrialization. And with industrialization came this focus on the self. Human beings belong to somebody else for about 10,000 years. And then in the industrial revolution, human beings move from serfhood to selfhood. And now I belong to me. I don't belong to the king. And I can have my own life and my own land and pick my own wife and husband or whatever. But that was the age of the individual. That's been running for 500 years. The preceding age was of, of the farmer and of the rise of monarchy was 11,000 years. So the time sequences are shorter, 500 years. And we think that the individual that's focused on the self has run its course and that it's a calling for the next step, which is context. A tree doesn't grow by itself, it grows in a forest. And the, you know, there's a network. No human being ever comes into the world by him or herself. You come into the world through a relationship and you got born and you got raised. And so that we need to move to context, to the relational context in which the individual arises. So that's the thinking around it. And then it dawned on us as we were working on this that isn't it interesting that classical physics, which focused on the atom as that out of which everything is made, is being complemented by quantum field theory, which is the field within which the atom arises. So that the human brain is moving to understand nature in a different way, which calls for understanding the social system in any way and that we are all derivatives of relationship, not the source of relationships. We are derivatives. We're all created in relationship. We need to know that therefore we're all connecting and that while connecting, we need to honor that and to honor the whole. And then that serves the part. If you take care of context, the context will take care of you. Like you take care of earth, it'll take care of us. 
Yeah, and I, I've just as you're talking, I'm I'm thinking about how we're seeing our relationship not just to each other, but like you said, to the earth, how we are all interconnected in this web and that we need to be able to work within that to yeah, move to the next level, to move to the next place, the next space, the next evolution of our history. And that is a huge goal. And I, I love that you're talking about it and thinking about it on that scale. Yeah. Well, it seems it requires that we're doing it because the earth is closing in on us. If we, if we, if we don't do something about context, we're all dead. So anyway, yeah, that's that that's the thinking behind it. And Helen can now go to the micro thing about, well, inside of that, what do we actually teach people? Yeah, we would love to know about the brain and the neuroscience behind it, because I think that the truth is there's a lot of different therapeutic modalities out there, right? Tons of people out there teaching about various modalities. And so I think people can be skeptical and science often helps people feel like, huh, maybe I can trust this a little bit, right? There's evidence here. So I would love to give our listeners a real overview and um, help them understand and conceptualize how these safe conversations work and how they can really shift their relationships. So all you have to learn is that relationships include something people do not know. People think relationships are any two people that have a history together. Well, the way we describe a relationship is two people and the space between them. Most people don't realize there's an energy field between you and the other person. And um, when there's safety in the energy field, people feel comfortable and they relax and they can even tell a joke because because they're so relaxed. If there's any, if I do anything, it could be my look in my eye or my tone of voice that creates anxiety in Harville and thus an anxiety in the space between. Harville wants to shut down and get up and leave the room. And I go, what's wrong? I was just telling you a joke. That was supposed to be funny. Well, if it wasn't funny to Harville, he doesn't want to hear it. So I have to go to Harville and I go, Harville, did I say something that offended you? Yes. You know, yes. <laughs> and then he goes, would you do a repair? And he asked me to do a repair and uh, just not tell that joke around him or leave out the punchline or whatever. Anyway, any two people who are suddenly feeling anxious can restore safety with safe conversations tools. So there are four tools, learning the three steps of the dialogue process. One person is the sender, one person is the receiver. And the sender asks for an appointment, Harville, may I talk to you about a problem that I had? So, so let me see if I got that. You want to talk to me about a problem that you have. Right. Getting that? Yes. And it's now a good time. Now's a good time. Oh, wait, we're on a, a call. <laughs> You're on a call with us. So, so you want me to, you want me to know that we're on a call yeah, with Marty yeah. and Thank Queen. you for marrying me. Anyway, <clears throat> so one of the big things is ask for an appointment when you want to have a dialogue because maybe you're saying, I'd like to have a dialogue about where we go to dinner tonight or I want to have a dialogue about uh, something that's minor, but it could be something major. So the person who you want to listen to you needs to tell you 
when they're free to have the dialogue. And then you have their undivided attention. So and that's, so to that's say, called making an appointment. And, and that's and to we say, encourage everybody to make an appointment. That's to say there is structure to the safe structure. conversation process. Right. And Google, the business, had a great product and they were making millions of dollars. But then they decided to take two years and study what makes a healthy team that creates products, a business, what makes a healthy business. And structure and safety were two of the things that make businesses work. So every business in the world needs safe conversations. So basically, to make this space between safe, we teach any two people who want to move from conflict to connection to uh, use dialogue. And then we invite them to shift from judgment to curiosity and wonder. Number two. Number three, we invite them to commit to zero negativity. Like if there's something that frustrates a person or makes the other person anxious or sad, they need to let the person know about it and ask the other person, could they do what they did in a way that doesn't make them feel put down or bad? Can you share a little bit more about what you mean about zero negativity? I'm asking that just because the way that I interpret it is if there is a couple that's having a crisis or a conflict, isn't there already sort of inherently some negativity there or negative feelings? Yeah. And it's basically learning to shift from telling the other person what they are doing wrong to learning to ask for what you want in a way that's a, a kind look in your eye, kind tone of voice, and people know what they don't like. They can they have written down the six, 10, 22 things they don't like about their person that may be their love partner. I am so frustrated that you do this. I'm, you don't put the top on the toothpaste and you leave the stove on. <laughs> and they've got their list of what they don't like. What they need to do is respectfully ask for what they want. And most couples don't know what they want. They just know what they don't like. Yeah. And it sounds like as you're describing this, it's like creating that structure to create that safety because our emotions can get the better of us so quickly that we spiral into this negativity so fast. And if we don't have some kind of structure, our emotions are going to take it away. Exactly. That's called the crocodile brain, the lower brain. <laughs> so I'm about to get to the brain. So yeah, there is a part of us. Um, the last of the four things is the other thing, Dwayne, that people don't know, couples, like married couples don't know how to do. Most of them have stopped remembering how to have fun and also being funny. And Harv and I almost divorced about 20 years ago. But then we kept trying a little bit longer. Yeah, and, and, and we had tried for 20 years. And, and we, we realized that what we needed to do was <clears throat> have more fun and be more funny and silly. Yeah, and it's really interesting that little things make the big difference. So we discovered that our relationship was just rife with negativity and with put downs. And so we made a decision and Helen put it into Helen puts things into operation, zero negativity. We finally came up with that term. 
and Helen uh, got a, a calendar. A 30-day calendar. 30-day calendar. And we marked every wall. day whether or not we made it through the day with a smiley face or a frowny face. And it took three months of monitoring to get to a smiley face. We didn't, I mean, we were really dirty with negativity. Wow. So, so what got clear to us is. But, well, wait, both of us came from families where our families didn't have fun. We didn't know families were supposed to like watch TV together or go to a ball game together or have dinner together. It, we were from families very different on the economic spectrum. And so we had kids and we didn't know how to have fun with them or watch movies together or go and and or, our kids were miserable living with us. Yeah. And nor fun with each other. Right. But we knew how to be negative. So then we got joke books that we gave the kids at dinner. And at dinner we would tell you know, ask each other questions and see if people you know, everyone started laughing at the dinner table. So having fun is the fourth thing that creates safety. So I can close anything I want to say with just a little bit about the brain. So we, and we better get to it. Neuroscience is um, it's very complicated. The 2.8 pound organ in one skull is considered the most complicated organ in the, in the universe. We have talked with uh, Dan Siegel and other brain people and we just said this is how we teach and they said that's fine. We tell everyone that there are two sections of your brain. This is what every person should know. A lower brain that is a crocodile brain, and thank goodness for the crocodile, it keeps you alive. It controls your body functioning. When you get sleepy, it lets you go to sleep. When you get hungry, it reminds you to eat. It just, and it's automatic. You can't control the crocodile brain. And if someone says something that bugs you, the crocodile snaps. Because <laughs> they don't, how dare you say that? I thought you cared about me. Gosh, I'm leaving. Forget it. I'm out. <laughs> you know, the crocodile is automatically, and you can't control the crocodile. Every single part once you decide to use the dialogue, you move to the neocortex, which we call the wise owl part of the brain. And the wise owl is wise enough to know that um, if I want to be happy, I want my relationship to be happy. And for my relationship to happy, I need to learn to use dialogue and ask for an appointment if I want to have a successful conversation. And if I don't make an appointment, oh, and then the other thing, a kind look in your eye and a warm smile uh, or a warm, warm, warm face, you know, a kind face, not a critical looking face. How you look at somebody else. Uh, Har Harville is really big about the, um, the waiter at the diner. And I'm big about the uh, checkout person at the Walmart. I want to make sure that person's had a good day. Anyway, we just, yeah. we said sort of um, taking time to care about other people. But anyway, when you choose to put safe conversations in your life, it's a choice. And you're out of the crocodile brain and you can live your whole life in the wise owl. 
And I have really experienced neuroplasticity. And one of the reasons Harville almost divorced me, and this is the last thing I'll say, I was forever trying to, quote, improve him. And you did a good job. I did. <laughs> he, couldn't stand, he couldn't stand to be around me, even though I was right, and even though I was doing a good job. But I just needed to be silent around Harville. That's, I'd improved him enough. He was doing fine. What he needed was a partner who learned to ask him questions and to wonder about him. I had told him everything that I know to tell him about his dreams coming true. I don't have to do that anymore. I stopped doing it. And I, I literally felt my brain change. And is it not true that I do not talk as much and I'm a happier person? I agree. Okay. I think what you're saying, which I love, is that these are things you can do. They, oh, I want to say they're not complex per se, but like you said, they're small, but they they have a big impact by changing the way you look or rephrasing it using your, like what you were saying, your sentence stems. By using those tools, you create that safe space. And it's not, um, it gets you out of the crocodile brain and you can stay in this other brain that's more strategic that actually really gets you where you want to go by using these tools. Mm -hmm. So I Correct. I have a question. Because yes. of the fact that our listeners and so many of our clients that Dwayne and I work with are traumatized couples who are dealing with the aftermath of betrayal, it's hard for me to imagine. Um, now, listen, I, first let me say this. I do teach Imago. We, we actually just did that this weekend. We teach Imago as a basic communication tool when we do our couples workshops. So I believe in it very strongly. But would you say that it should not be used for clients in crisis where, for instance, a partner feels so traumatized, right? They're so shocked and traumatized by the discovery of betrayal that they're really not in a place maybe to choose to give up the negativity. That is why Amago therapists are there. When it is not a problem, two people can handle themselves, absolutely hire someone and let them uh, manage your process. A person shouldn't manage it alone. Yeah, but could I just add uh, another thing to that? Any couple in trouble is because they didn't manage their negativity. Their negativity is what got them into the situation they're in. And we think, we now say it's non-negotiable, that negativity is a pathology and you have to give it up to be healthy. So what Helen said is that they literally should engage in the dialogue process with the commitment to ask for what they want rather than complain about what they're not getting. And that goes to the prefrontal cortex as well, because you ask from up there. And if you do that frequently enough, you actually reorganize your brain. So you get a better brain out of doing it. This is a therapy that produces new neurons and therefore neural restructuring. Mm -hmm. If you're in crisis, you really need to do this process because you're in crisis because you have been drowning yourself in negation and you need affirmation instead. Yeah, I'm almost like thinking as, as you're talking, like I'm thinking of some of our clients who are in a high level of crisis that asking for what you want 
can also be about setting those appropriate boundaries of maybe the person that has betrayed you, that you're asking for what you need. And in a way that is a positive frame, the other person might not be able to join with you in that in that moment, but that is a start of that process. What an Imago therapist does that a safe conversation practitioner isn't instructed to do is ask a couple who's experienced betrayal, um, adult, whatever, what was your vision when you married? What did you think this relationship would look like? And they had them write out their dream relationship. Like, take them out of their feelings where they are now and move them into, what, what did you think this relationship would be like? Well, that lifts them out of, my wife did this, they, that she did this, she likes this guy better, or blah, 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 my husband. I can't believe he would do that after I've done so much to help, you know, be have a good marriage and all these kids and everything with his last name. And uh, so anyway, it takes them out of all the reasons they should be angry into another part of their brain. And they get some, well, is there any part of that vision you'd like to try to bring back into your relationship now that didn't get actualized? And so this, again, moves them to another place. So that's my first comment. So my second comment is Harville has given me permission to say what he did that... Um, Oh, I didn't know I was giving you permission <laughs> to disclose my... Well, he does at workshops. So if, for me trying to improve him, what Harville uh, has given me permission to say in our workshops, is because we don't want any couple to think it's hopeless, and it's not. Harville said, when I would say, Harville, we are not using the dialogue process. And I'd go, we haven't taught it to our kids. And he would go, Helen, I teach this stuff. I don't do it. Now he does. So, Marnie, I, was, I, was I want you to know it. he does it now. <laughs> okay, okay. okay. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. <laughs> that was one of the reasons we were divorcing. So, let, so, and let, now, so yes. let me see if I'm getting this. That I teach this stuff. I don't do it. And that now I do. Am I getting that? Is there more about that? Yeah, there's no such thing as a hopeless couple. I mean, oh, there's no the, such thing as a hopeless couple. When we were divorcing, couple. I just thought, I can't believe I've had a divorce, worst day of my life, and now the second, this is really the worst day, being married to a marriage expert. I did want to ask both of you what you would want to say to listeners who are in that place, maybe where you guys were 20 years ago when you were thinking of divorcing, where it's really at its worst and there's no hope, right? No hope for healing. I'm curious what each of you would say to, to that couple or those individuals. Nobody is ever helped by being blamed. You're just not helped if people tell you bad things about yourself. I know there's an unconscious assumption if I tell you the bad thing about yourself, then you'll do something good. But actually you can't because when you hear something bad, you have to go into a defense. Your vagal system goes into operation and the dorsal vagal, blah, 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 blah. And so you have to learn something new. And I'd like to teach you what the new is. And that is, you have to learn how to talk and listen without criticizing and judging. And that's absolutely essential. Uh, if you want to get to the relationship of your dreams, you have to give up what keeps you out of it. And negativity is the primary thing that does that. But you have to learn a skill to get there. And I want to teach you the skill now. 
You said you weren't going to say anything I know. Else. I know. May I? <laughs> Please. Yes. That couple who goes, this is what's been done wrong. This is what's been done wrong. So, yes, you can walk away. You've got all these reasons to walk away. If you stay and give more time working with an imago therapist, your brain might change in a way for the next 20, 30, 40 years will be a gift to you. When I started being quiet around Harville and wondering about him and asking him questions instead of me talking, I thought I was doing it for him. I'm the one that got the gift. I am a more peaceful person. And so tell that person thinking about divorce, you might go ahead and divorce. You know, maybe it is time to say goodbye, but become friends for the sake of your own brain. You will be a more peaceful, happy person if you can learn to use safe conversations in every relationship and in every way in your life. Uh, this idea of, you know, not having negativity. I have a question about that in the context of responsibility when someone has caused harm to the other, right? And and the difference between that person being accountable for that and taking responsibility for that and negativity and where those two divide. Well, I think the clinical answer to that is that you put the two people in the dialogue process and not worry so much about invoking zero negativity or, or not, or who's responsible and who's not. Because you know, as a clinician, no matter what the other person did, there was a co-creation of that. And one person did this, they had an affair or they hit somebody or whatever, but there's nobody who just does stuff. You do stuff in a relationship, in response to an interaction with another person. So what you do is put them in the dialogue process. And they may say, I, you know, I can't mirror her back or I can't mirror him back. So you mirror them back. And so let me see if I'm getting this. You think you can't mirror him back. Am I getting that? Yes. Okay. Let me invite you into an experiment. So uh, Mary, would you say one sentence? Now, George, can you mirror back one sentence? Well, I don't know. But would you just be, just humor me and see if you can uh, take five deep breaths <sighs> and then mirror back one word in that sentence? Because I want him to move up here and out of here. Our listeners can't see what Harville's doing is he's saying he wants her to get out of the crocodile brain into the wise owl. They can't just jump out. This is where you have to be the, the rider on the horse and you guide them out. If it's one, I have done it one word at a time for 30 minutes to get one full sentence out. By the end of that sentence, the person mirroring had calmed down and the person being mirrored had calmed down because to hear yourself being mirrored constellates the prefrontal cortex because you can't hear it if you're in the lower brain. The lower brain can't hear anything. And out of that process comes the resolution to these issues can start to evolve out of that process because there's accurate mirroring, you're hearing the other, and you can begin to heal when you're in that process. That's right. 
and you may have to just do the mirror and maybe the checkout accuracy. Did he, did he get that? And what's really exciting, if you get that far, you can say, so is there more? Which moves again into now curiosity that you can start to explore, is there more? But what we do not do anymore is spend a lot of time exploring your past or exploring your relationship to your mother or father. That internal exploration makes you an educated neurotic, but it doesn't necessarily change your ability to interact with another human being. So you can do that later in therapy, but not at the critical point of therapy. People need to behave differently. And you have to walk them into that little tiny step at a time until, as Helen says, that sense of structure creates safety. And now you can begin to move into what can we do to make this relationship work? And then later, if you want to spend more money becoming an educated neurotic, we can explore what it was like to be a child. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So I know we have to wrap up in a few minutes, but it just dawned on me that we've only shared two parts of the dialogue. Helen had mentioned earlier making an appointment, and then we've been talking about mirroring. Can the two of you speak to the third and the fourth part of this very important process? I think we're confusing something. Let's get it clear. There's the dialogue process, which has three steps inside it. But the whole safe conversation process has four. It's a four-legged stool. It's dialogue with empathy and zero negativity and what Helen referred to as player fun or the formal word for that is affirmation. If people go through those four steps, it'll transform their lives. But dialogue is the horse they ride. And it has arrowing, validating, empathizing as those three steps with sub-sentence stems inside each one of those. It's a very technical, structured. And we say to therapists, I don't care if a couple complain about structure and rigidity. You can't learn a skill without structure. So get over it. Uh, and you can just say, well, I just like free flow. Well, like Dr. Phil said, uh, how did that work for you? Right. Yeah. Structure creates, creates connection. Absolutely. I can agree more with that. Yeah. And I was just thinking about, again, these couples that we see that are in crisis that might not be willing at first to say, I'm not going to not blame or I'm not going to take, um, you know, I, I'm going to be mad because he or she deserves it. Right. And they, they have to take it for a while. But then what I was just thinking is, but that's where it's a choice. If you want to stay in that place and resist getting into a place of peace, right? Peace within yourself and finding healing in the relationship, then you can either stay in that and argue and fight and be miserable or leave completely, like as, as you said earlier, Helen, or be willing to try something different if you want to stay, if really you want to stay, to be willing to make a choice to do it differently, even though it's going to be really hard. Because you know what? Zero negativity, that's hard. That's hard mm -hmm. for people. Oh, it's very hard. And especially because the brain has a negativity bias. You know, that's a part of the neurological research is the negativity bias of the brain. Hundreds of thousands of years, the brain had to be suspicious. And therefore, the first thing it looks for is what's wrong rather than what's right. And you can't train yourself out of that. 
what you have to do is train yourself out of, okay, I notice what's wrong, but I'm not going there. Yeah. I'm going up here and saying, hey, even though my lower brain is saying, I'm, you know, blah, 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 my prefrontal cortex can say, you know what? Let's take a walk or let's go to dinner or I've been missing you. You can do that. It's called choice, as you said, or choice about what signal you're going to send. And you have to ultimately interact in the space between in such a way that you connect. That's what everybody wants. But most of us think we can get it if we annihilate the other person with negativity. And that's crazy. So what you have to do is help people in these little tiny steps and then later you can give them some psychoeducation. You don't start off with psychoeducation because they're nowhere near being able to process input. But you can hold them in a structure and say, I'm going to give you a sentence and you say it after me, okay? Right now I'd like to have an appointment to talk about our relationship, okay? Say that to Mary. Mary, would you mirror back what you just said? And people will come. I've found that if you just take charge and start them off with something non-confrontational, just, is it okay if I talk or can I have an appointment that they can move into connection? But it may take a full session or two just to get that done. But you don't care because you're training the brain to be non-reactive. I don't care what they talk about as long as they talk it in a certain way then they'll get this like playing tennis right if you want to just swing that racket around fine but if you want to hit the ball over the net you have to do it this way so you're saying that the healing comes from and the benefit and value comes from literally staying within the structure staying within the structure because there's where you get to safety safety is the door to connecting connecting is what heals that's what everybody wants is to connect but most of us walk around disconnecting all the time in the service of connecting. Absolutely. Know that when we yell at you that you're not, didn't hug me, that that does not evoke connecting and hugging. Right. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, we really appreciate you being here and we appreciate you offering hope to others. And thank you for taking the safe conversations out of, as you said, the clinic and really bringing it into the world because the world really needs it now more than ever. And thank you I, very much. I can't tell you, it's just so um, special for us to be with two people who see the importance of this. And we appreciate you. Yes, as well. absolutely. Thank you oh, for having us. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, where your healing is the number one priority. If you'd like additional resources about betrayal trauma or to learn more about the workshop, please visit helpingcouplesheal.com. If you're finding the podcast helpful, please support Marnie and Dwayne in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast with someone you care about. Once again, thank you for listening. We're grateful for your trust and look forward to continuing to support you on your journey of healing.